Would you please turn with me to Revelation chapter 18? We're studying through this book. We've been studying it for quite some time. We're getting to the end of it. It only has 22 chapters, so it'll only take us three or four more years to get to the end of it. Let me remind you of the four portions of Revelation, the four segments has a a four-point outline. Chapters one through three, we called The King Teaches Us. Remember those studies of those, those seven letters to the seven churches? The King Teaches Us. And then chapters four through 16, the King Protects Us. Those are, that's the biggest portion of the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is written to the church that is embattled to encourage us in this, in this world. So 4 through 16, the, church, the king protects us. And then chapters 17 through 19, a little bit of 20, the king liberates us. And then finally, chapter 21 or 20 to 22, the king celebrates us. The king teaches, protects, liberates, celebrates us. So we're in chapter 18. Last week we started 17 and we noted that every one of those four parts is indicated by the little phrase, in the spirit. John is saying, okay, now I'm moving to a a new general topic with this spirit, with this phrase, in the spirit. We saw that in chapter 17, verse 3. I was in the spirit. Now I'm going to tell you that Jesus liberates you. From what? From the powers of hell, the powers of man, from whatever your enemies are. He is promise. He is liberating and promises finally to liberate you at the judgment day. That is, if Christ is your Lord and Savior. Now, you have to be aware, before we read a portion of this chapter, I want you to be aware that the controlling metaphor is the city of Babylon. And the world's the city of Babylon. We touched on it last week. The city of Babylon is the city of man, as we said, St. Augustine calls it. He said, no matter where you live in this world, your citizenship is in one or two places. Your citizenship in reality is either in the city of man or the city of God. And St. Augustine said that, uh, that, that the characteristics of your citizenship are not laws. It's not, the, the characteristic is not which law you obey. You're characterized by what you love and who loves you. So in the city of God, of course, we are loved by God in Jesus Christ. We love Him in return. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, you know what it is to be loved, and therefore you love. In the city of man, Augustine said, it is characterized by selfish loves. In whatever way you love, it is ultimately for selfish gain. You are at the center of it. Your citizenship is, is not found in any one country as much as it is found in the city of God or the city of man. And in our text, Jesus tells us how he liberates us from the city of man. Because even if your citizenship is in heaven and you know Christ, you know he loves you, you know at the same time that you 
struggle, your pastor does too, with loving selfishly. How is Jesus ever going to set us free from these selfish loves? Here's the answer. We begin reading in verse 1. I'm just going to read portions of this, of this text because I learned in the first service that I'll run out of time if I don't. Verse 1, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Turn over with me to verse 20. Again, he addresses the church, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When I was in seminary, one of my friends took her three young children, she had three at the time, took her three young children to the St. Louis Zoo. And uh, her children were eager to get to Big Cat Country. That's the section of the St. Louis Zoo where you can imagine what you see, big cats. Siberian tigers and cougars and, and uh, lions. What they especially wanted to see, what one particular little boy, one of her sons wanted to see, was the cheetah. Now, the cheetah lived in a ravine. There's a deep ravine cut there in the Big Cat Country and and then uh, it was surrounded by large rocks and the ledges. And over the top of that uh, whole section was because of a cheetah's ability to leap and jump and run. It's it caged in. There's a cage over the whole top of that ravine. Now they got there and they were disappointed that they couldn't see the cheetah because he was way down deep in the ravine. So she was attending to her other children when she heard to her horror, her son say, hey, mommy, I can see the cheetah from here. 
She turned around and saw that somehow he had found a chink in the, in the cage around the enclosure. He had climbed out on the rock, the ledge overlooking the ravine, and he was looking down at the cheetah. And the cheetah was looking up at him, thinking, thank you, Lord, for my daily bread. <laughs> she didn't know what to do at first. She was torn. Does she, does she scold him? How could you do such a thing? He might get his feelings hurt and, and just stay there. Or, or does she lunge toward him to try to grab him? He might back up and fall into the ravine. Instead, she came up with this brilliant plan. She got down on her knees, and she spread her arms out, and she said, Jordan, mommy needs a hug. Jordan loved his mommy, and he ran off the rock, through the gate, and into her arms. And then she fainted. <laughs> no, she didn't faint. But she was greatly relieved. Now, how does Jesus confront selfish love? How have we seen him confront our selfish loves throughout the book? Does he say, you better love me or I'm going to get you? Does he lunge at you? Does he scold you? Well, sometimes he talks to us pretty sternly, but... Jesus woos us. Jesus expels our selfish loves and our false loves by offering us better love. He opens his arms and he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, come to me. He exposes in our text the repulsiveness of selfish love. The, the, the degradation of it, the dehumanization of selfish love. He exposes the ugliness of it so that we will be attracted to his real love. Now, what are those loves? We've covered them throughout the book, but here is the last chapter in which he is once and for all going to deal with those selfish loves, selfish loves not only in our heart, but that characterize the rest of the world, that have opposed him throughout history. I have three points in your bulletin, but I learned in the first service I only need two. And those selfish loves could all be put under these two categories. Money, which stands for anything, anything that is material, anything that is temporal in this world, that promises, that, 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 that makes the promise that if, unless you have me, unless you have this, you will miss out. And secondly, what the Bible calls sorcery, sorcery, which is anything that promises that you will be like God, that you'll be independent. Let's call the first one not just money, let's just call it FOMO, you know what that is, the fear of missing out. And this is what the merchants of the world, of Babylon, of this sinful system that the Bible calls world. The world is this, is this, is this a system that is, that is in control of our fallen hearts, of fallen hearts. 
that, 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 that system that is inspired of hell. And it's, it has merchants that go throughout the world and say, in effect, if you don't have me, if you don't have this, you'll miss out on something. You'll miss out on something that you need for your satisfaction, for your happiness, for your security. If you don't have this, you will not be approved of. You will not be welcomed. You will miss out. It's why the Bible often links materialism or what is promised in this world to sexual immorality. Seems like a strange pairing, but here is, here is what the Bible intends, and we see it in our text, that what the merchants are selling, the merchants have teamed up with sexual immorality in order to sell their wares, to, to sell to others around to say, listen, take this and you will be satisfied. Because to take it to take what the world promises will alone satisfy you, which will make your life complete, which you need for security, which you need for approval, to take it means you must prostitute yourself for it. You must sell out in some way. You must compromise your sole commitment to Christ. If Revelation has taught us anything, it's taught us that more and more there will be this decision that we must make as Christians that will put us out of accord with those around us, even those claiming to be Christians. To follow Christ is a narrow road, a life of suffering and ridicule at times, of reviling. So he says, you must set your heart on Christ and make Him first in your life and determine that you're going to follow Him no matter what. Otherwise, you must prostitute yourself in order to gain what is being promised to you. I just think about, just think about how it works in our world. Let's take some extreme examples. Let's take spies. Why do spies turn their back on their country? Because of money or because of some vendetta or for some sense of fulfillment and importance. They have to prostitute themselves. They have to sell out their country in order to gain what is promised. Or think of, of uh, those politicians who compromise their character. They have every endeavor, every intention of following their conscience, but they sell their conscience because that's the only way they can maintain some power, or if not money, or their office. Or think of preachers who mute their message or, or compromise what they're called to say because they want the offerings to stay up or they want prestige or approval. Or think about, uh, think about a husband or a wife who knows that their, their spouse is involved in, in something that is a, a business deal that is less than honest, but they like the standard of living that they've become accustomed to. Or even the schoolboy or schoolgirl who just goes along with the crowd or doesn't stand up to his or her friend because they like, the, they like being accepted among their friends or they like the, the nice trips that they get to go on for vacation. It's not just getting rich. It's not just gaining more. 
It's not just, uh, it's not just having a bigger house or, or higher standard of living. It is anything that the merchants of the world system tells you, this you must have or you'll miss out. You'll miss out on our acceptance. You'll miss out on your security. You'll miss out on your future. You'll miss out on your influence. You'll miss out. How in the world does Jesus confront that? Is Jesus' love powerful enough to woo us away from that? It is, according to Scripture. Jesus says to us, for instance, in Philippians chapter 4, through Paul, Paul writing from prison, of all things, he says, listen, I've learned a secret. I've learned a secret of being content. That's the opposite of the fear of missing out. I've learned the secret of contentment. What is it, Paul? Have you learned three easy steps? Have you learned, uh, have, you, have, you, have you gotten into a, a good investment? I've learned the, the secret of contentment with whether I'm rich or poor, whether I have plenty to eat or not enough. I have learned the secret. What is it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have learned that if I turn my back on the fear of missing out, if I refuse to hear those who try to, who try to intimidate me or try to threaten me or, or try to scare me into thinking I'm going to miss out on something, I, I, I've learned if I turn to Christ, He satisfies I can't explain it all together, just like Peggy said. I can't explain that piece at all, passes all understanding, but I know he provides. Later on in the same chapter in Philippians 4, Paul says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. This is not some health and wealth preacher saying this in Philippians. This is Paul from a prison cell saying, I'm satisfied in Christ. I don't like the prison cell, but I know that there is a satisfaction that is deeper and more profound than this world has to offer. Now, what do we often hear? Oh, yes, that sounds good, pastor, that sounds good. But listen, I'm a businessman, or we live in a real world, or this is not the way the world works. You've just got to go along with certain things. You've just got to compromise. You've got to wink at certain things. You've, you've just got to make certain decisions because that's the way the world works. I won't be able to pay my bills. I won't be able to retire. I won't be able to provide for the church or for, or for missions opportunities. But do you know that the Lord knows quite well how to provide for you? That your needs are not a surprise to Him. In fact, He tells us He creates need so that we'll look to him and he can supply it. But when we rush around trying to supply our own needs, we miss out on the beauty of his loving provision. Oh, you say, you don't know my, you don't know what's against me. You don't know what the, you don't know what's stacked up against me. You don't know how big my bills are. I've got to, I've got to compromise in this way. I've got to, uh, you, you don't know what, uh, I've got kids going into college. I have twin daughters that are getting married in the same year. Not that I have anything like that. You don't know what faces me. You know whatever, the, the greater the odds, the greater the need, the greater the potential of 
God getting a name for himself. I was thinking yesterday about this. As I got into my pickup truck, I remembered this story from a previous pastorate. I was pulling into a parking place for lunch one day, and I, and, uh, I got out of my little car, and I heard this huge truck come around behind me, a diesel-powered truck came, cast an eclipse over my car, and parked in the space next to me. And from high up in this truck, in the cab of this truck, the window rolls down, I hear a tiny female voice, hey, Pastor George. This little girl, gal clamors out of the tree. She's one of the girls in my church. And, and uh, I knew that she had been going through a really tough time in her family. Her dad was uh, a highly paid professional, but he, was, he had become severely emotionally and maybe otherwise abusive to his family. And she had to stand up to him. And to stand up to him to the point that she had to move out and move away for her own protection. And, uh, and he retaliated by taking away her car and taking away her college tuition payments. And, and uh, the Lord was, she was cast on the Lord. And she said when he took away her car, she didn't know how she was going to get to to her job, which was necessary to pay for her college. And, and so she was reading her devotions that morning, Genesis chapter 15, about God providing a ram in the thicket in place of Isaac, the covenant son. And she said, Lord, if you could provide Jesus in the place of my sins, that's a harder need than surely you can provide me some transportation. And she said, look, Pastor George, what he provided. It's a ram. <laughs> a Dodge Ram. Don't you know that God enjoyed doing that? Take it all away from her. Put her back against the wall, you evil man. Let me show her who really provides for her. We're celebrating Reformation today. The father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, was preaching the gospel. They threatened everything he had, threatened his livelihood. We're going to fire you. He said, go ahead and fire me. Well, if we fire you, it'll take away all of your, of your uh, stipend, away, uh, take away your salary. Then what are you going to do? Well, what if you don't have a salary and, you, and you, don't have, you don't have a house? Where are you going to sleep at night? And Martin Luther said, under God's heaven. You can't threaten me with a fear of missing out. God is my provider. Don't you want to live like that? Aren't you, aren't we, aren't we embarrassed of where our selfish love, which is it's not always pompous, it is just, it is the thought that I have to take care of myself. Aren't we embarrassed of how it robs God at times of opportunity to glorify himself? Jesus said, I'm going to kill the selfish love, the selfish love that leads to the fear of missing out. I'm going to kill it. Secondly, he says, I'm going to kill on the judgment day as I'm going to kill sorcery. You say, whew, I don't have any chance of getting convicted on that point. 
I don't use a Ouija board or anything. Oh, wait. Sorcery in the Bible is a reference to that temptation that the devil put in front of Adam and Eve. You want to be like God so that you don't have to depend on Him any longer? You want independence. You want to be like God. The Bible then connects sorcery to five other things. Five things you would never connect on our, we would never connect on our own. Sorcery is connected, obviously, to witchcraft. An interest in anything to do with demonology or Satan. Friends, I've got to tell you as a pastor, stay away from it. You say, who in the world gets involved with that you wouldn't believe? It's more and more common with the advent of the internet. More and more people dabbling in it. Say, I'm just going to do a research paper on it. I'm just going to see what's out there. I'm interested in that so I can be a better Christian. Or maybe I'll practice a little of that, of that, uh, that white witchery just to help me through life. Stay away from it. The devil loves to draw you in. It's not that he's more powerful than Jesus. It's not that he really does anything that is especially powerful, but he's a spiritual terrorist. And if he can convince you that he has a, little, a few tricks up his sleeve, or if he can intimidate you or make you afraid, he would love to do it. Stay away from it. But sorcery is also connected to other things, like sexual immorality. Connected to sexual immorality. How so? Because to have sex outside of marriage, to be very blunt, is to deface the image of God. To have sex outside of marriage, whether it's heterosexual sex or Homosexual sex is to deface the image of God who gets his glory in your gendered faithfulness, the beauty of the gender he's made you in, or he gets his glory in bringing a man and a woman together in oneness and sacrifice and commitment to death so he can demonstrate his unity and diversity and his commitment to you. Sorcery is also connected to greed in the Bible. We've talked about greed and material things, but, but it's, it's greed in other ways too. It's anything by which you try to manipulate circumstances in order to draw attention to yourself. Maybe it's the way you engage in conversation. Maybe it's a martyrdom complex. Oh, woe is me. No one loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat some worms. It's just a, it's this focus on self, drawing attention to self. Sorcery is also connected to discord. Creating discord among any group of people, but especially in the church of Jesus Christ. Discord over, over things that do not matter, non-essentials to the kingdom of God. We have allowed ourselves, haven't we? We've allowed ourselves to be manipulated by the algorithms of social media into finding ways to be at odds with one another when those odds should not exist. The Bible connects that to witchcraft. And then sorcery is connected to rebellion. Rebellion against the authorities God has put in your life. It doesn't matter who you are or what station you've arrived at in life. Everyone is in submission to some authority. Our president, our leaders 
submission to the law and every one of us as someone to whom we are to be submissive. And, and God said he does that for our own good, but he also does that to test us. How can you say that you really respect me as your authority if you don't respect the authorities I've placed in your life by my providence? Now, how does Jesus confront that, that sorcery, that idea that I don't need to be dependent? I'm the smartest person in the room, or I am, uh, I, I, my rights trump everybody else's, or uh, I can determine what I should do with my, what I can do with my body, or I can cut someone else off if they disagree with me or disrespect me or don't agree with me in my political opinions. How does Jesus confront that with a better love? Because he knows, he warns us, he speaks so strongly against these sins. He speaks so strongly so as to, to attach these sins against the body of Christ to sorcery because he says that is the devil's strategy. If the devil can create cracks in our foundation, if he can get a foothold in our fellowship, then he can weaken us and we'll be vulnerable to his greater attacks on the outside. He doesn't even have to persecute us with the law. He doesn't have to persecute us by, by those on the outside who say, I'll put you in prison if uh, you don't confess Christ. He just puts tension in, in us. He weakens us from the inside, making us vulnerable. The way the church, the, the way Christians were run out of, of uh, the East in the 600s and supplanted by Muslims was not because Muslims violently took them over. It was rather that the Christians took, uh, were at odds with each other and they destroyed themselves. And Muslims just moved into their churches. I want you to be set free from this kind of selfish love that puts you in the middle of your, of your world, your universe, and demands that everyone else agree with you. There's no way to live. There's misery in that. I remember an elder I had a number of years ago who, who uh, frankly, for many years was a thorn in my side. And uh, early on, he said, uh, I'm going to be your prayer partner. I said, oh, lucky man that I am. And every month he said, I'm going to take you to lunch and I'm going to find out how you're doing and uh, then we're going to pray. Well, he, he took me to lunch every month. He didn't ever find out I was doing. He just complained and just criticized. And then when we would get together afterwards, we had to pray in his van. And he said, uh, now uh, I'll pray for you and you pray for me. And he always prayed for me. I pray that you would humble George. One day I say, he's answered your prayer. He's put you in my life. Well, I did need humbling always do. But that was not just with me. That's the way he was with his family. That's the way he was in the church, constantly stirring up criticism. Never, nothing was ever right. He was miserable and everybody around him. But a few years before he died, I don't know what happened, but this is the prayer I was praying for him. It's what Paul taught Timothy to pray for those who are stirring up dissension in his country. 
And he said, pray that God would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they would escape the snare of the devil being held captive by him to do his will. These were Christians who were being used by the devil to stir up dissension. It doesn't mean that they were possessed by the devil. They just fell prey to his being used by him. I prayed that for him, not in public, but I prayed it for him. And somewhere the Lord did it. I don't know exactly how it happened, but the Lord humbled him. The Lord humbled me too, but the Lord chastised him and he came in to meet with me and he said, I don't know why you ever let me be an elder. And I said, I don't either. (laughs) He said, I don't know why you ever let me be an elder. I was so miserable, so critical. I I just, I, I didn't bring honor to the gospel of Christ. But the Lord has changed me, and I want to spend the rest of my days bragging on Christ. I want to spend the rest of my days telling other people how to find the joy of the Lord in a relationship with Christ. And so every morning, he would go to the local mall, and he'd walk around and around and around, and he'd have little tracks, and everybody would say, God loves you, and here is how you can have a relationship with him. That's the way he finished his days. It was so much more beautiful. Jesus loved him that much. He loves you too. He loves you too much to let you go on in the fear of missing out, to let you go on in the delusion of independence and insisting that everybody else bend to you. I'm always looking for heroes to encourage you and me with. I found a new one recently. His name is Roland Hayes. Roland Hayes is called by his biographers the father of the African-American concert singer, the first African-American concert singer. He was one generation removed from slavery. His mother had been a slave in South Georgia and his grandfather a slave on the same same plantation. But he grew up free and he he, he lived next to someone who took an interest in him and one day played one of these newfangled things called a record on a phonograph and it was of Enrique Caruso. And he said when he heard that operatic voice, he was overwhelmed with what heaven could do with a human voice. He determined he wanted to be just like that. He memorized those operas. He memorized that voice and imitated it. And, and then he, he went on to he, had to, he had to work and he got a job in a, in a foundry. And uh, one day through some freak accident, he was dragged through this industrial press, not once, but three times to the point that everybody just left him for dead. Miraculously, he recovered from that near-death experience, and he took it as, as an epiphany from the Lord, like Saul on the road to Damascus, and it was the Lord saying to him, quit your regular job and sing for me. Sing opera for me. Well, you can imagine not many people encouraged him in that. No one, as a matter of fact especially his mother, but nevertheless, he followed that, that calling, and he, he walked from South Georgia to Nashville, enrolled in Fisk University. He attended there as long as he had money. He ran out of money, in fact, 
uh, both black and white, were trying to manipulate him with money to say, we want you to go this way, we want you to go that way. He turned his back on this and said, I have a calling. He walked on up to Boston. In Boston, he determined he was going to rent Boston Symphony Hall and an orchestra to go with it so that he could have an operatic performance. He went to the mayor of Baltimore's wife, patron of the arts. She said, no way am I going to support you. I only, I only support successful things. So he got a phone book, and he went through every name in the phone book, and he called them, and he said, don't you want to come here, the famous Roland Hayes? And he packed that symphony hall. Made enough money to cover the expenses, lost some money. But then he toured other symphony halls, and then to the point that he became pop popular enough that they, someone sponsored him to go to Europe, and he was barnstorming through Europe, singing in all the famous places, including before the king and queen of England, he sang, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Now, he could have taken his money, gone home. You've done enough, Roland. But he decided he would face head on, as he had in his own country, he would face head on the demonic power of racism in Germany. Nazism was on the rise. He could have gone home, but he said, I'm going through Germany. I'm going to sing German opera. Beethoven, Schumann. He put a six-inch picture of his face in the German paper. He was scorned, ridiculed, for whatever curiosity, they showed up and packed out the thousand-seat auditorium, all Nazis. They didn't even turn the lights on for him to find his way to the piano, just a single light over the piano. He and his pianist find their way, stands under the light, and the hisses and the boos and the insults flying. Closed his eyes and looked up heavenward. For 10 solid minutes, he was harangued by that hostile audience. Finally, they wore out. He prayed the prayer in his heart that he always prayed. Lord, hide Roland Hayes. Blot out Roland Hayes that they might see only thee. He opened his mouth and he began to sing. Your calm, mild peace, you are longing to give, but what steals it? I consecrate to you my eyes and heart, full of pleasure and pain, as a dwelling place here, sung in perfect German. It hushed the crowd. When he finished, he kept his eyes closed. There's no sound for a while, and then from the back, one lone clap, which set off a cacophony of others and cheers. Roland Hayes came back from Germany with the money he made. He bought the plantation in South Georgia that his mother and grandfather were slaves on. He bought it back from the slave owner and allowed the slave owner to live in a little house on the same plantation until he died. Here was a man 
who was threatened with money, shame. He was a man who confronted sorcery, demonic oppression. How in that world did he ever persevere through it? How did he become more than a conqueror, not to respond in hate, but in silencing love? Well, he explained it shortly before he died with the only recording of his voice when he said, I wonder if people are generally not aware of their serious and intensely spiritual nature. My people have comforted the oppressed and envisioned hope for the future both in this world and the next. Through them, the Spirit of God and the vision of a better world became a unifying and living force. The hope of freedom was a source of deep-seated spiritual strength for my people, and their hearts murmured when it was not expedient for them for their lips to speak it. One cannot imprison the soul, nor can adversity crush the spirit of man. Do these words in Revelation work? Does it work to believe that Jesus wins and He's on the other side of Jordan's stormy banks waiting for you to come home with the well done, good and faithful servant no matter who has rejected you, no matter what you have lost here, no matter what insecurities you've lived with here? You bet they do. They did for Roland Hayes, those truths galvanized the courage of Roland Hayes. They've done the same for millions of others. They will for you too. Jesus says, I love you. The Bible tells you so. Run into his arms, turning your back on all competing loves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would set us free from that which distracts us from running without entanglement the race set before us. I pray it, Lord, that you would do it for the one who has never professed you as Lord as well as Savior. Would you do it for those who have professed it a thousand times? Get us home soon. Get us home successfully to hear your welcome. In Jesus' name.